Welcome to Hosting HR with me, Leon Morley, founder of HR Recruitment Solutions, a recruitment partner exclusively for HR professionals. The Hosting HR podcast brings audio recordings of live shows with HR gurus and experts from around the world. These shows were originally broadcasted via YouTube, Facebook and LinkedIn. Our live audience have the chance to ask questions directly to our expert panels and therefore each show is organic, unknown and raw, just how we like it. The shows are designed to challenge a HR professional's thinking, progress the HR profession and have a little fun and laughter along the way too. So stay tuned as HR Recruitment Solutions begins hosting HR. Hello and welcome to Hosting HR with me, Leon Morley, founder of HR Recruitment Solutions. We're currently live across YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn and also on Twitter at the moment. And today we're going to be discussing how to build a high performing team. If you'd like to get involved in the show, then that would be great. We'd certainly like to hear any questions you might have for our wonderful panel, which we'll introduce to shortly. And any comments as well, if you uh, have an opinion about something, it's great to see those and we will share those as well with the wider audience. So please do get involved. Um, Also on those platforms, it would be great if you could like things. So thumbs up or I think it's a heart on Twitter would be very, um, I'd be very grateful for that. And obviously we let other people know that this is hopefully good quality content, which is what we're all aiming to do now. So let's do some introductions, shall we? So we'll start with uh, Lisa. Could you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Yeah, absolutely, Leon. And uh, thanks for having me here tonight. Um, So my name's Lisa Tomlinson. Um, I am the CEO of Limelight People Group Limited, um, a HR consultancy which is values-based. Um, and we specialise in leadership and management development in HR projects and HR consultancy support. Uh, my background is a head of HR in a charity and education setting. Um, and before that, I've had many, many other roles, uh, which I think really helped to shape that experience, um, which I now bring to other businesses. Thank you, Lisa. And obviously your company and HR Recruitment Solutions share the same de- birth date, which I'm always very happy about, or launch date, I probably should say. But, um, but yeah, do. nice to celebrate those birthdays together. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Launching on the same day on LinkedIn was, yeah. uh, was fabulous. And we've been helping each other on our journey since then, haven't yeah. we? Occasionally yeah. in a jacuzzi, but that's a story for another yes. day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, has been known. Um, so, uh, right, moving on. So, uh, Liz, um, if you could introduce yourself to the audience, please. Thank you, Leon. It's great to be with you all. I'm a management consultant and executive coach, and I was just thinking this morning, in December, I'll have had my practice for 35 years, and I'm, I know, long, long. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, I'm also a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and to Forbes, and I come to this from more of a business perspective, I think, how to get things done on behalf of the business as a whole. Thank you. It's a a real pleasure to have you with us. Um, Francisco, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah. Hi there. Uh, Thank you, Leon, for inviting me to be here with this wonderful uh, panel. Uh, Delighted to be here. Um, I'm the co-founder of Codo People. Codo People is a 
behavioral economics company is a SaaS, you know, operating in the talent and HR space, you know, based on, you know, or using uh, behavioral economics methods is, is pretty innovative. And I'm so happy to bring to the table um, a different perspective, no, about the topic that we have today. Fab. And I think it makes sense to talk a little bit about behavioral economics now, because um, it's something that I've read a few books about in the past and found it very interesting, but it's not necessarily a widely known sort of mm. practice or theory or school of thought. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit what we mean when we're talking about behavioral economics. Yeah, yeah. I think behavioral economics lately is is, is, is becoming trending. Um, you know, there are a lot of, you know, uh, books out there. Um, the last Nobel Prize, uh, Richard Toller uh, in behavioral economics. Um, you know, behavioral economics is a science that I love because it studies human behavior and take insights from other other sciences like sociology, uh, neuroscience, anthropology, psychology. Why not uh, psychophysiology, neuroeconomics, and then you know we know uh, thanks to behavioral economics and other sciences that the homo economicus is dead. Right, it's not alive anymore because we are not fully rational. Actually, our rationality is limited, right? And because uh, we have emotions out there, um, you know, in an unconscious level sometimes, unconscious level other times, you know, influences our decisions. Is 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 good to consider that we are not making decisions wholly with our rationality, right? And then you know, I think it's the the main thing. Uh, obviously, it's a super uh, wide science. You know, you can dive in, and then you can find many things. Uh, in our case, we studied uh, in Kodo people. We applied um, um, how people make choices with real consequences. You know, using economic games, applying the game theory. As a part of behavioral economics, but you can you can read a lot. Now there are a lot of books. Uh, Nudging by Natch, in this case uh, by by Richard Toller and Cass Sustain. Uh, Irrationally predictable by Dan Ariely. Um, Think facts, think slow by Daniel Kahneman. There are a lot of books uh, that are pretty interesting to read. Fantastic, and, and I, I certainly think you know bringing that sort of different perspective into the HR arena is uh is really interesting and and i don't know many other people that are doing it so it seems like you're the pioneer in the space so it's certainly uh, great to, right. to have you on board with a completely different angle um probably to any other panelists we've had on hosting hr so it's great to have you here um, right Thank so uh, let's move on shall we to it's time um, for two lies one truth <laughs> 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 right, so it's time for two lies, one truth. So, for those of the of you that might be joining us for the first time, um, this is where each of our panelists tell us three facts about themselves, two of which are lies, and one is the truth. And at the end of the show, we will do a reveal. We'll, we'll all guess as well. And, and I think if you've been watching a few of the recent shows, I've had a very good track record of getting these right in recent times. So keen to see whether Francisco, Lisa and Liz are able to pull the wool over my eyes on this one. So um, should we go in the same order? So um, Lisa, can you tell us your three facts, please? OK, so fact number one. I travelled on my own to South Africa when I was 19 and had a job making didgeridoos in a backpacker's hostel. <laughs> Fact number two, um, I beat Findus Pancakes to a HR award. 
Fact number three, I have a degree in fashion design. Oh, interesting. Okay. The sex <laughs> one, what's the second one? You beat who to HR award? Findus Pancakes. Findus Pancake. I don't even know what that is. I might be sure. <laughs> but they make pancakes, I assume. <laughs> They're from the 80s. They, everybody knows. Oh. Yeah, like oh. Sam and, you know, oh, okay. Like Findus right. Pancakes is in that genre. Oh, okay. I, I must be too young for that, Lisa. You must, must be too be young. Before I show my age. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Right, I've, I've written those down. I'll ask you to remind us later anyway, but uh, very interesting. Um, Liz, will you tell us your three facts, please? I decided you would find me out right away because <laughs> I have a transparent face. So I'm going to read all three of mine and try to throw you off the set. Um. The first one is that I was actually trained as a concert pianist. Second is that when I was 23, I managed a 300 employee call center. And the third is that I'm an excellent cook. And one of my hobbies is hosting elaborate dinner parties. Mm, okay. That's right. Okay. I have some ideas on that. Francisco, what are your three facts? Yeah, this is too difficult. I'm I'm like like Liz, right? I'm super transparent and, and I'm, I'm gonna try to read and not to laugh, right? Um the first one is I love having for breakfast chocolate special K cereals with pineapple juice instead of milk. Uh the second one, I worked as an stripper. Uh, during my university <laughs> stage, and the third one, <laughs> I'm a big fan of Harry Potter. Okay, okay, lots of people are big fans of Harry Potter, so we'll we'll see on that one. We'll come back yeah. to that at the end of the show, and we'll do obviously our our reveal. Um, so yeah, there we go. We've we've met our. Uh, three panelists now we know what they do professionally and we've got some ideas about some of the things they might do unprofessionally as well um, so let's talk about how to build a high performing team shall we so the first thing i sort of thought about when i was thinking about this show was how on earth do you even define what a high performing team is i was thinking in sport it's pretty simple. I mean, I'm a Newcastle United fan. We're obviously a high-performing team. Um, but it's difficult in the workplace. So um, I was hoping you guys as experts would be able to help me. So I'm wondering, Lisa, will you be able to perhaps define what we mean when we're talking about a high-performing team and what that generally would look like in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's an academic answer here, which is that there is many, many different definitions for high-performing teams. And it depends who you look at. There's clear definitions from the CIPD, the OECD, lots of academic researchers in this area. There is some things that all of those definitions have in common, though. Um, and I think the, the, the overview for me of a high-performing team is it's got to be contextual. It's got to be in the context of, you know, what that performance looks like and the specific circumstances. But there is commonalities across sports teams, Formula One teams when they're changing the tyres on the cars and trying to do the fastest job that they can, rowing teams, football teams. Um, and those commonalities usually are around involvement of people. So everybody being involved, um, everybody understanding what their role is and having ownership of that and mastering that, um, clear purpose, aligned goals. So there's lots of common traits that you can find when you start exploring high performance across 
you know many different teams what do you think Liz? I agree with everything you've said and I think the contextual issue is really significant what is the team tasked with what are their expectations Um, but to your point it's really that everybody understand the same things what the purpose is what success looks like the idea of supporting each other the issue of psychological safety can be very important, particularly in typical workplaces. Um, Sometimes that's not always the case in sports teams, but in workplaces in a classic hierarchy, psychological safety makes a real difference in the long-term capability of the team to perform. Um, And beyond that, The issue of commitment is very significant and whether people feel really a part of it and support each other and want to be doing what they're doing. Yeah, you know, I absolutely agree with that. When when I work with leadership teams on this, we usually um, have some look at Lencioni's model of a high performing team with trust as the absolute foundation. Um, you know, that all high performing teams are built on, I'd say. Um, and psychological safety is absolutely an element there. Um, the, the second part of Lencioni's model, which I think is one of the other, when I work with teams, it's one of the other things that can probably make or break a team is that threshold for challenge and conflict and constructive challenge versus destructive challenge. Mm. Yeah, we well, certainly want to talk about that because I know, Liz, that's an area for you that mm-hmm. um, is something you've, you've spent a lot of time sort of researching conflict and is it constructive or not and, and how do you sort of manage those sorts of areas. So, um, Francisco, we're going to bring you on a little bit in terms of some of the sort of behaviours that you might expect to see within a high performing team. And it's interesting to talk about psychological safety as well, because I think about some of the successful sports teams and I'm not sure necessarily if you asked um, for example, some of the, the footballers used to play for Man United under Alex Ferguson, which was an incredibly successful sports team where they felt psychologically safe. I don't think they probably did. I think they were fearing for their lives most of the time. So um, and, and sometimes that can that can bring out a high performing team. Right. But just um, on the sort of behaviour side, Francisco, what sort of behaviours would we expect to see within a high performing team? Yeah, first of all, I would like to, to put an example. Now, for me, an orchestra. Is a, is a good example of a high-performing team because everybody is accepting their role and then they are playing their instrument. You know, it sounds great uh, collectively, right? It's a, it's a great, great example, right? For me, we typically, typically used to use, um, you know, sports. Uh, but in sports, there is something different because uh, even when it's not psychologically safe place, you have some mechanisms of control, right? If you don't play well, you are in the bank, right? You are out, right? And then that is a control in the workplace when something is not doing what is expected, what is the mechanism for control? Yeah. Taking control now as a micromanagement, right? It's a, it's a, it's a huge difference. Uh, for me, behaviors, you know, uh, through the research that we did in the past, you know, for instance, with Nokia Communications um, some years ago, and also, you know, researching and observing many, many huge companies, big companies like Apple, for instance, or companies like that. I think for me, uh, cooperation is absolutely key. Your preference for, for cooperate, cooperativeness, uh, trust and trustworthiness are key factors. 
to also to create psychologically safe spaces and long run orientation, uh, meaning that we have to have a common vision in the long term. We have to be patient, to coordinate, to accept others, to work together, but we have to be focused on the short term executing, right? But long run orientation, we know by the science that is a is a big factor of career success. Patient people tend to be more successful than people that is, that are impatient. Interesting. I was thinking in recruitment, we always talk about um, impatient. Always running. Something always running. That, that, yeah, that, that makes somebody like really successful. I'm notoriously impatient. And um, and I've had you know I've made a good career obviously in what we're doing, but it's very much on the basis of you know I want things to happen now. I want to get that candidate now. I want the, the role on now. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 um, the, the patient side of things. But in fairness, um, you know I, when I think about obviously HR recruitment, so, you know I, you think about the long term and the long run. You're not thinking about you know necessarily the next week, and you want to build the right brand and the right company with the right people in it and doing the right things or what I perceive all those things to be anyway. So. Um, I was interested in in, in just thinking about because this is obviously aimed at HR professionals, right? So, is it the HR professions, and probably Lisa is probably the the, the the HR representative on this panel? Is it HR's responsibility to to create and build high performing teams, or is it is it managers, or is it is it a collective effort, or who do you think should be really thinking about how, how we're how we're going to do that and how we're going to build these teams. Do, do you think HR is the main, should be the main sort of people looking at this? I mean, it's a collective effort, right? Because, you know, HR can't be tasked with something as important as making, a, you know, whatever team that looks like, whether it's, you know, a small team over a, a business unit or whether it's an executive leadership team. Um, you know, that's too important a job to put on one department. And, you know, we talked about, within high performing teams it's really important to have a clear leader often and you know clear responsibilities and clear job roles and for people to understand those so it's got to be a collective effort to create that it can't you know it can't sit with an outside function necessarily however hr have got some really important things to do there you know in organizational design and development you know how do they shape this organization how do they link that to the strategic goals how do they make sure that those strategic goals are you know communicated again not just hr but how do they make sure that silos don't develop and people aren't starting to go after their own goals you know rather than those aligned aligned goals job design another really important thing one thing that i always focus on in terms of high performing teams as well is diversity because you don't get high performing team if you have a homogenous group right. you know if you think back to that um, I don't know if anyone saw the photo of the EU summit where they were talking about Ukraine and it was just a sea of, you know, white haired men of a certain age. And there was no difference, you know, in this table of 150 people. You know, those type of groups don't lead to high performing teams generally because there's often, um, you know, really similar blind spots and they're not bringing that, um, you know, that creativity, that innovation, that difference of thought even when we do, you know, disc profiles or whatever other psychometric profile you do, you're trying to get people from each different characteristic to build a really good team. You know, so HR do have a real role to play in terms of the recruitment selection, the job design, the organisational design to create the environment that's psychologically safe where those teams can thrive. Can I jump in? 
Yeah. I think I think that's all great. And I also think that sometimes HR is unfairly looked to to fix a team, to cause it to be high performing when it's not high performing, when that really requires magic. Um, HR can be incredibly helpful in all the things you talked about, Lisa, and also in, depending on what the circumstances are, of course, looking for the right competencies Mm-hmm. and making sure not just that people know their roles, but actually have the skills to do them. They can do the wonderful investigation up front to determine what's necessary if they are given a seat at the table in the business or can advocate for that seat. Um, but it's remarkable how often HR is brought in sort of at the 11th hour when things aren't working. And that's painful for everybody because it's hard to save the day then. If HR can be an internal facilitator, that's often very helpful, or acting as a consultant to help structure things. Um, But I would hate to have all the pressure put there. I don't think it's fair. Interesting. Um, When we're talking about, we talked about OD there, Lisa, and we're talking about culture. And I always think, well, yeah, that's probably got to be a key part of it, right? So everyone knows, you know, what the, what the, what, you know, the behaviors within that culture. And we did a show um, on um, how to create um, company culture change. Um, and we've done similar shows on how HR can add um, uh, company performance, basically increase company performance. So a lot of these things are obviously quite similar. And a lot of them talking about the culture aspect, um, yeah. obviously, of a business. But then I think, well, even with a good culture, you might have teams that aren't necessarily high performing. But I'm just intrigued about if you were to talk about a culture itself, what is kind of like the ideal culture in order to ensure that you have more high performing teams than lower performing teams? Like what would be the culture that you'd expect? I think you talked a little bit about psychological safety. Maybe that might be part of it. But how would you describe that culture and how can HR um help create that culture within a business and I'm, I'm throwing that out to all of you because i'm not sure who to direct that one at but it's just something that i'm, I'm quite interested in yeah i would like uh chris and Pin, uh, i would like to to introduce uh, a nuance here um because we now we know what the science that behavioral economics in this case that the culture affects the way people behave mm-hmm. right it's not the same working for coca-cola that for Pepsi or for Microsoft or for Apple, no, operating in the same sector, the organizational cultures are absolutely different. And as a consequence, people behave differently. What I mean by that is we can have uh, high performing teams in one company and then put the same team in another company and they are not high performing team, right? Because the context matters a lot, right? Um, and trying to, to, to build this, uh, this high-performing culture. Uh, I think it's, it's really important to work uh, closely with all the employees and all the organization in the sense that we, we, we need to avoid uh, ego thing. Uh, ego destroys everything. Um, we have to put under control envy, right? Uh, professional envy. Uh, not necessarily it's always bad, but uh, because we, we when, when we play envy and compassion, it's okay. But if you don't have compassion, envy is absolutely 
um, uh, destroys everything, like ego, like the ego, and then, you know, avoid complexes, right? When you are aware of your virtues and your weaknesses and whatever, and you accept that, you are always in the position to help others yeah. to achieve the common goal, right? And that's for me is really it's really important to do that work with every person in the organization. Does anybody else want to jump in on that? On the culture piece? No? Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll peel over. I think there are also culture and high performing teams agreed upon behaviors. What's the way we behave here? How do we treat each other? And sometimes it needs actual discussion of specifics when something's not working. And the way we go about, I love Francisco's discussion of envy, not something we talk about every day in business <laughs> because we do like a little bit of internal competition from time to time, you know, the idea that we can perform better than others, that can be a real sort of adrenaline shot for a lot of people. I agree. Um, but how do you exhibit that? Which things are okay and which are not okay? And the culture is something that happens over time. None of this is static. You can't just legislate it. It's a question of how people live and actually express themselves. And then, this is not exactly conflict, Leon, but then what happens if somebody doesn't like what somebody else does? And given all the other things we've talked about, is it safe enough to raise that? Can you draw that back to what our shared values are and therefore why we should shift in a particular direction? So I think it's a moving target. Yes. Yeah. I was um, I was involved in um, a cultural change project um, where I joined a small organisation and it was um, it hadn't really changed in 20 years. It had a, a quite a static, you know, CEO. Um, it was quite, you know, kind of behind the times in some ways. And it, when we did the first survey, the results were shocking. There was, I think, 17 percent trust in leadership. Um, you know, 26% of people liked the culture there. It was very, very low. And it was a small organisation. So we were able to turn the, the ship very fast, as you can with small organisations. And 18 months later, um, we were entering awards for investors in people. We'd got gold and we had 98% satisfaction with the culture. We, we turned it around that fast. The, 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 it, was a, it was a great project to be involved in. And you know, a lot of different factors um, impacted on that. But the thing that stuck with me and the reason why my business is led by values is that the values that we put in were really integral in shaping that culture. Because culture is made of like so many things, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, operations, infrastructure, governance, it's all kinds of different things. But those values, if you can get those right, and again, they're not a static thing, they're, they can move and change. But if you can kind of enable people to understand those values in their own context and lead with those values themselves you've got everybody in the organization shaping the culture then rather than just you know here's a culture code everybody must you know adhere to that um so for me that was a really fascinating way of 
creating a high performance organization not just a team through embedding those values and I mentioned it to you guys before but it almost went the other way where it's almost cult leadership the values were so embedded we had to do a bit of a kind of okay we need to maybe like you know moderate this a little bit because everybody's getting towards more of a cult than an organization because they love the values that much which is the other end of the spectrum so that's that's really fascinating I think when you talk about high performance and you know how you kind of create that framework for it to thrive I, th- I think also there's so many businesses that have these values these words written integrity or mm-hmm. professionalism or something and um they're not often like if you ask people and I, I I've quite often been to companies and said okay well you know what's it like to work here and um what, what are your values like what are the company values and I stopped asking because people were like oh um I think I think one might be integrity, one might be teamwork. I think it's teamwork. Is it teamwork? Yeah. And they don't know, like, because it's and, and you can tell that the the culture yeah. there is just not that strong, or whatever the values sort of part, it's not really considered that yeah. strong. And I think, um, you know, for for us as a business, I mean, we've gone through a, a real thought process about it because I launched the business, you know, just kind of because. Well, to be honest with you, because I wanted to do something good for the HR profession, it's my skill set and everything else. But um, I was I wasn't really sure about what exactly that's going to look like. And then when I started obviously hiring people at the beginning of this year, it was like, okay, well, I need to I need to give them an idea, like just because the essence of what it is that drives me and why I'm passionate about HR and why I'm passionate about recruitment. And we went through this whole thing. We've gone through this whole thing about improving the experience because one of the things that really motivated me was that a lot of recruitment companies got a really bad rap and they got a bad rap because they weren't really looking at things like the candidate experience or what the client mm-hmm. experience would look like and what can you do to make that experience better and so I thought well that that's kind of my angle so it's if you know for us when I'm talking to you know people in the team and I'm they're, they're sort of learning off me about my values about doing things properly doing things ethically doing things you know with with detail and doing making sure that that experience for everybody is strong so everybody gets a reply you know all the things that other agencies might not necessarily do so I think it's really interesting in terms of if you're doing that with a larger organization how you get that you know the values and I think it's great that you did that with such a you know size of organization because it must be difficult when you've you've got obviously bigger teams and thousands of people employed I wanted to come on a little bit about sorry Lisa sorry I was just going to say it's the interpretation of them as well isn't it because everybody interprets yeah. differently yeah yeah. yeah on top of that uh Liam briefly um you know we have to we have to operationalize our culture Right, how to make yeah. it real, not putting values on the wall, mm-hmm. and then yeah. how to communicate effectively all the values, the reality of our culture. I do it, we, we do it in code of people what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what are the red lines, you know, how to address misbehaving or misbehaviors. Immediately, those things are important to protect our high performing culture. Mm. I wanted to ask you, Francisco, about the the relationship between the individual and the team and about sort of compensation levels, because I know this obviously is going to fit in with behavioral economics. So yeah. and I always think about in the recruitment space and Liz also touched upon this idea of intra-competition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know for something for me, that's always been a driver is I would never mm. be happy if I wasn't near the top of the board of the thing, which is always everywhere and really open and people could see it right and I was like I need to be near the top and I would do whatever it took to make sure I was near the top and I found that so I wouldn't say I was happy about it it was just kind of like I needed to be there it was almost like a 
that was the the not being there was be something that would drive me. But I'm thinking in terms of compensation levels, because if you're rewarding people, let's say for personal performance, but then not giving them, for for example, a team performance Mm -hmm. bonus or profit share or something like that from our compensation levels, is it, can you still have a high performing team, for example, where all of the compensation and therefore the reward comes from you know, the, the, the team, I said, but from the individual, if that makes sense. I'm trying to work out whether you can have individual rewards and still have a really good team. Yeah, that is, that is the key question, right? How, how, to, how to motivate our teams to perform better and to keep them engaged. Um, if your bonuses are always individual, you are not never going to have a high-performing team. You, know, you have to be aligned, right? But if you set group bonuses or team bonuses, yeah, you are putting the scheme to get all the people in the team aligned to get the bonus, right? Um, also, we have to know, and, and, and that is one of the reasons that we have to measure uh, behaviors. Uh, people, there are people that don't, low, don't like uh, uh, self, uh, social competitions, for instance. Don't like social competitions. People that don't like um, self-competition. They perform uh, worse when they are uh, they, they they have to exceed the expectations, right? We need to know that to balance the team, to balance individual goals, individual bonuses. Obviously, we have to have uh, individual bonuses, but for we know, thanks to behavioral economics and other social sciences, that social incentives sometimes are more powerful than individual ones, and then we have to we have to figure out. What is the best way or the best fit for our company? In my own experience, changing the compensation scheme is almost impossible. Even when you are proving that, even when you are doing the research, uh, companies are not willing to change the compensation scheme. Um, then we have a we have a roadblock there. At least perhaps uh, knows this uh, better than me as an executive coach and and whatever. But, you know, it's super complicated to touch the compensation schemes, right? Super complicated. Uh, Even when it it, it could make the difference for the company, though. Yeah, I mean, just today, actually, I was talking with a, um, well, they they head up quite a large um, HR consulting company. And in the, the compensation package that they have, they don't have any personal bonus whatsoever in there. And I thought it's quite strange for a consulting company in particular, but it's all around the, so they have a, a, a um, like a profit share basically scheme. And um, I'm, I'm guessing, although I, we didn't go into other roles in every role, but I'm guessing that that's shared with some sort of ec- equity in it and that people probably get the same sort of share uh, regardless of level. It might be, a, you know, there might be some sort of sophistication around it, but it was just interesting that they decided not to bother at all with sort of like an individual, you know, bonus for doing well themselves. It was all about, well, if we do well as a company and you're part of that company, you will be compensated this, and this is what it kind of looks like. So um, it was an interesting um, discussion that I had just just literally this afternoon about it. it got me thinking <laughs> about the compensation elements. I don't know, um, Lisa, Liz, whether you've had sort of like similar things around compensation, or if it's not really something that you've necessarily looked into in terms of uh, with teams. I would say, Leon, that as a recruiter, this is 
a very interesting area because people self-select in many ways into the nature of the compensation that the organization provides. And so if you have, oh, I don't know, um, a heavy hitter salesperson who is used to significant sales commission, they may not be comfortable in an organization that's team-based, where the bonusing is team-based. And to Francisco's point, changing compensation is the hardest thing. However, you st- it's like a legacy system. You know, everybody's yeah. used to it and they're kind of bound by it. And it can be really difficult to create new incentives that actually work and don't just create resentment. So, so I do a lot of work in this area. So, so I do job evaluation, benchmarking, competency and behavior framework, design, um, consultations with reward programs in all different sectors. And I find this topic fascinating. As an ex-salesperson, um, you know, who used to be in recruitment and other sales roles, um, you know, and was always individually motivated rather than team motivated. Um, but then going to a charity where actually we had to do compensation, which was across the board and everybody got it or nobody got it because, you know, people that work in charities, particularly the one I was in, for instance, are not motivated by individual performance and are really turned off by it. So it does, it has to be really right for the environment, doesn't it? It has to be really right for the strategic goals. Um, And it's very, very difficult to change. And it's, when I go in to do a pay project, which I do a fair amount of, it is the most controversial area that you can go in to do. Um, so important to get people involved from day one and get those ideas. What I find amazing is, is how intrinsically motivated people are by a lot of things other than pay, though. You know, so actually offer somebody 10 grand less, but they can have an extra day a week with their children. You know, often it's a, it's a hard decision there. Um, you know, offer somebody 10 grand more, but they have to work on their own when they like to be in a team. You know, again, money's one one aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, research shows that the effect of money wears off very, very quickly. It's an extrinsic motivator, wears off very, very quickly. Intrinsic motivation is what keeps people there and gets yeah. that passion and gets a team to become high performing. And to go back to the, the initial question you asked, Leon, as well, I was thinking about the, um, the Formula One team you know, who changed the tyres very fast. Obviously, the drivers paid a lot. I, I doubt the people that are changing the wheel nuts are paid that much. So maybe you can get high performance when there's lots of different compensations. Mm. Yeah, They might get a bonus based on how quick, as a team, they do, rather than how quickly they put the tyre on or remove the tyre or whatever the part of their exactly. role is. But I, yeah, it's it's interesting, and I can imagine if you've got a legacy business of like two hundred years old, or across you know different geographies and all that kind of stuff, to then say, oh, you know what, you should get rid of all your individual bonuses and just create like a profit share. <laughs> like, can you imagine trying to to implement that across the business? It would be no, an absolute nightmare. <laughs> super complicated. It's interesting, isn't it, in terms of looking at those? And it'd be good. There must be some case studies of organisations that have gone really far the other. Maybe Lisa's example, obviously, of the charity is, is a good one about um about that sort of side of things what, what i think I, is I, that, I'm, a, I'm a salian i worked with them yeah. um, with a law firm and that was really fascinating because they'd, they'd done that they'd split it into you know there was oh, still nice. individual but there was team as well but then there was house points um that they could get for you know conversions and referrals and all these other types of things um and it was it was pretty complex and it hadn't gone down well with some of the more old school people that wanted that you right. know i bill this much i want this much of it 
Um, but the thing that came through to me was that the younger generations were really interested in things like how about I have a cleaner once a week? How about someone comes and cleans my car once a week? Um, you know, what about um, paying for a holiday? You know, all these other things are what's becoming far more popular now. Interesting. Interesting. Just talking on, on those points, we, we quite a lot, and certainly in the recruitment industry, um, you have these like social events and they're kind of considered like really key things to to kind of bond the team and stuff. So you probably wouldn't get like a team bonus, but oh, you, you could have like a free bar for, for an evening and think that, <laughs> that was your sort of team bonding and things like that. Do you think that, do you think just based on what you said, Lee, do you think that helps to create a high performing team, whether you have a free bar on the company once a quarter or something, or what's it, what's your thoughts I on that? The thing that helps the most is recognizing that people are different and they're motivated very differently. And it's what we cover on most of the courses that I do at some point is that people are really different. It's why psychometrics are really powerful you know people are motivated by very different things and you've got a unique situation now where you've got multi-generational workforce like we've never seen before you know so you've got um you know boomers <laughs> the course boomers uh, the gen z's gen x's boomers millennials you know all thrown in the same pit together um and what suits one person you know a free bar couldn't think of anything worse now i'm in my 40s honestly <laughs> 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 You know, it's not going to motivate me that much. Um, you know, but, but the younger people who have been locked down in COVID for two years and have, you know, joined a company because they want that social interaction and they need mm. to go and meet people. And you know, a free bar van's amazing. So it's yeah. it's more about bespoking. It's the personalization rather than standardization, which is where places are working towards now. Yeah, there's a good yeah. segue here, Liz. Go, go on, Francisco. Yeah, Liam. Sorry, um, because on top of these. Um, I forgot to mention that um, we we actually practice this in code of people. Uh, we 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 have to and, and linked to what Lisa was saying. We have to we have to build a relationship. Um, human relationships are the more important thing. Don't matter if you are working hybrid, remote, or in the office on site. You have to be intentional building those relationships, and that is based or should be based on respect and no judgment, right? Um, because of this criticism, you know, typical in companies, in large organizations, where everybody is criticizing, uh, critiquing everybody, um, you know, um, I think we have to avoid that kind of behavior, right? Uh, that toxic uh, culture. And then, you know, no judgment, respect for others' ideas. And then, you know, being intentional, building human relationships, a bar or whatever, right? I think is is the most important thing. Thank you. Um, one of the things I want to talk about, just it's very similar to this in terms of we're talking about different generations, but there's also another trend, obviously, in going into hybrid working or remote working, um, and companies that are wholly remote as well, and and how they're doing that. One of my biggest clients, they don't have they they are completely remote working, and they don't have that. And I always think, well, how do you how do you build that sort of team mentality and how do you build things around, um, you know, if you're across geographies and things like that, how do you build that trust and that sort of um, relationship and psychological safety around that? And Liz, I think something you've talked about, about the, the challenges with doing a lot of those sort of trust things and how you build that relationship or um, uh, it's in the sort of modern workplace scenario. So how, 
that must be more of a challenge than when you've got everybody all in together at the same time to be able to create that sort of you know team of trust and that team sort of cohesion how, how do companies and how should hr people go about sort of helping with that and fostering those that area of trust so i'm going to give you a yes and a no in the harder and not harder uh, a lot of it goes back to what lisa said about really knowing who you're dealing with and individualizing where you need to. Um, trust is something that is easily broken, much more easily broken than it is created. And I actually encourage people not to think so much in terms of trust, which is something only the employee can offer back. But leadership and management need to create conditions of safety. So I'm going to vary a little bit, Francisco, from what you said, because I think it's impossible to have no judgment. I think people are having them all the time and internal critiques are happening all the time. And so the question going back to the discussion of values and behavior is how do we convey the things that are necessary to each other? What is yeah. the appropriate sharing of information? Yeah, every so that people know what is most useful, what's most meaningful, what gets in the way. The ability to communicate clearly, candidly, and kindly all at the same time. Look, if if everybody could do that, we would be out of business, frankly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I pay my bills. Because yeah. people can't figure out how to communicate with each other yeah, that's or right. can't get along and decide they don't have to, you know? Um, yeah. We've, we've all seen that. So I think that the underlying principles, as we've already said, knowing what the work is, making sure that there is competence, these are the things that HR can be absolutely insistent about, starting at the beginning when you're hiring somebody, because so many job descriptions are vague or have language that could mean multiple things to multiple people. And really be clear about what the expectations are and therefore what kind of people are we looking for and how much of the competencies do they have to have at the beginning? Often, you can't get all the things you need in one person, right? I mean, these job descriptions are written as if people could walk on water, pull a rabbit out of a hat, <laughs> stand on their All these I'm things. I'm always amazed. I'm always amazed <laughs> about no that. Right. There's no person who can do all those things. So yeah. what are the compromises we need to make? And let's be straightforward about it. And therefore say, so here's what we need to do to accomplish the things we want, given the people we've got. Um, that's one. Two, we've talked a lot about how relationships are the most important. So there are two factors that leaders do not account for enough, and HR alone cannot bridge this gap. One is the time and attention of leaders themselves. How many people do you know say, oh, yes, I have a 30-minute one-on-one with my boss every other week. Is that really enough to create developmental relationships? 
I would question it, particularly in the knowledge economy, where so much of our work is based on collaboration and you are not just sitting at your desk grinding out your own thing. So the time and attention, the focus, the being aware of what's going on with all the individuals on your team, that's a manager or leader's responsibility. And if they're not doing it, that's what HR needs to come and ring the bell about. So that's absolutely crucial. And when you have that, the other place where HR can be desperately helpful, does any individual leader or manager actually make judgments fairly, reasonably, based on data? And not all data is quantitative, and some of it is subjective, but based on data, they're a way to capture observations, et cetera. And are they skillful, the leader, at conveying to team members anything that needs to change, be different, be better? Telling somebody to do better is worse than irrelevant. It's actually damaging. Telling them how to do the thing that needs to be different or better, demonstrating it properly, with the kinds of training techniques that Lisa has been talking about, that can actually accomplish something. But often we do not hold managers to account in this way. I think there's a real point in there as well about the way that organizational structures are, are really changing and having to adapt to um, you know, the pace of the modern world and you know, the volatility of the external environment. Um, because that kind of having, having the leader being the one that knows all the information and makes all the decisions doesn't, you know, doesn't often work in organisations. One of the main things that I see when I go into lots and lots of different organisations are some really common problems with working practices now. And when we're talking about high-performing teams, there's a, there's a whole infrastructure point there about people buried in meetings, people buried with emails, um, information and systems and processes either not keeping up with modern times or being too complex there's a whole point there about like the ways of working um, and these new concepts like agile um you know or um dynamic governance um and having flatter structures devolved power um you know so the leader's role becomes less about knowing and, and telling and, and shaping but far more about creating um you know different um circles that can interact uh, with agile, um, you know, good enough for now principles uh, and sprints and, you know, all of these kind of more modern modern practices. And I see that a lot is, is about the leader's role being more about creating an environment that's conducive to actually working because so many companies I know just aren't. They're just buried, buried in, yeah, death by meeting. You know, that goes back to Francisco's point about ego mm. because mm -hmm. for generations – leaders have believed that they were the ones who knew, yeah. you know, and could direct. <laughs> and everyone should agree, of course, and fall into line. And it's hard for people to give that up. Yeah. But what a different thing is ego. And other thing is uh, to be proud of, right? And I'm proud of my, you know, work or the way I approach work or whatever. But my ego is putting aside um, because if not you can't you can make it work right 
um, you always is are you, you always are in comparison with others, and then you know it takes uh, it takes you to to a place that is not that is not good. Um, I love what you said, Liz, about the about the how to communicate that. You know, uh, judgment is required. Yeah, but that was referring to judgment in the negative sense, right? Yes. Uh, but it's required. Uh, also, you know, recently I had to approach some uh, negative feedback uh, to to a teammate, and how to do that without hurting them mm-hmm. is is super important. Super important because we have to put emphasis in the self awareness thing, right? Self awareness is not about uh, oh, I do this super bad or that those are my weaknesses or no 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 your pictures too the good things that you do too you have to be aware both right and and then how to work on that and when you are aware of that you can communicate you can you can show the path right if you are a leader your responsibility is to show the path and then how how to how to get there right and then you know i love i love what what uh, has been said you know I was thinking as well, like um, cross-cultural differences as well in how you, you give feedback. Obviously, I've done a lot of work internationally and there were lots of different nationalities. And um, we have something uh, that Lisa will know about quite a bit in the UK called a shit sandwich. And this is a bit of a phrase that the, the, the British quite often don't necessarily say exactly what it is that they mean, but quite often they'll give you something good and then say, that could be improved yeah, and then something but, good again at the end. But, <laughs> but I, I always yeah, think... I don't like it. I don't yeah, like it. <laughs> no, lots of I other... Like my experience, like if you say that to, you know, many Europeans or um, an, an Australian or something like that, they're, they're really confused about why... And actually what you're trying to probably trying to say is that piece of work is is rubbish basically but you're sort of doing it <laughs> in a polite way and so people are really unsure so i suppose that sort of you know cross culture going back to that that piece around not just about being together but also understanding that the different people have different um ways that you might want to deal with them in terms of how to manage it and having that i suppose empathy to, to be able to deliver those feedback to help them improve is, is probably a, a key point um right. i was thinking about recruitment because obviously i'm a recruiter um, Francisco, I know that obviously in terms of what you do and, and, and Lisa, I know you do quite a bit in terms yeah. of um, have done recruitment and, and done quite a bit around sort of the, um, the insights and disc and all that sort of stuff. So how, how do you, um, I suppose Francisco might be good to talk about about Kodo people. So from the recruitment perspective, in terms of if you're trying to get somebody in that's going to help a team, how do you go about sort of analyzing those behaviors before they get in to make sure that they're going to help the, the high performing team that's already there? Like what, what do you do? Yeah, thank you, Liam, for the question. That actually, we want to to help organizations to build more humanistic cultures, more engaged cultures, you know. And then uh, Liz was talking about that. No, we we need more more data driven organizations, you know, making decisions based on data, uh, some objective data, uh, at least leaning on, on on that kind of information, quantitative or qualitative. Qualitative, it doesn't. Uh, it, it hasn't to mean you know subjective always, but um, but you know quantitative and qualitative. Um, we we know um, as an organization that behaviors are important because of the way the people you know act in the organizations. And if you have people issues, you're gonna have business issues, and then finally you are not gonna perform the way you need. 
And finally, you are going to be in trouble financially, right? And then we, we need to hire and attract people, you know, considering people's behaviors. We basically, we have three phases, screening, uh, behavioral style, and onboarding. We incorporated the onboarding one during the talent acquisition process because you, you can find many, many candidates, you know, ghosting companies once they are hired and they are in the in the in the short period now um and ghosting or quitting and then you know we need we need people engaged and then the onboarding phase inside of the talent acquisition process is for us is really important um and during the screening one we assess your adaptability behavioral adaptability your uncertainty management and your job interest you know job interest uh, is formed by self-competition you know it's like us intrinsic motivation and and diligence based on the 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 how how consistently you make the decisions you make through our assessment right okay. you are not picking randomly all the buttons you know making decisions randomly right and that, that is super important because you are taking it seriously uh once i have this screening index and then you i save a lot of time and then we are people with the right behavior so one person that is scoring above 80 you know you can be sure that that person displays the right behaviors to be successful in any position or organization because behavioral thing is cross, right? It's cross. Okay. Um, and then you, it's, it's the moment to pick the behavioral style. If you need someone, you know, uh, Lisa was talking about diversity, you know, the behavioral diversity is needed too, right? Mm. Uh, we don't, we, we can't have a team with everybody being conservative, predictable, and long run oriented, right? Isn't that? It doesn't work, right? When it's some 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 action to when it's some unpredictability to right, and doesn't we we have to we have to pick the behavioral style we need, and once we make decisions with any other information, interviews, checking CVs or technical skills or whatever, we hire the person, and then after three four weeks, we do the last assessment, right? The okay. important one assessing social behavioral preferences. Envy, compassion, selfishness, different things, cooperation, trust, because it's the time the person is, 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 is it is time enough to to be involved in the culture, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's, 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 it's super useful to, to, to see the gap between the, the real behavior and then the behavior we are observing during that process and how to help the, the, the person to, with the onboarding phase, right? Um, that is basically what we do. Um, because in some sense, you know, Liz was talking about that, you know, managers tend to judge uh, employees or, or team teammates through the direct observation. And we need objective information to, to, to thrive. Right? And then we are, we are bringing to the table this, this kind of thing that is super innovative, is super different. Um, but I think it's worth enough to, to build uh, better cultures. Inter very interesting indeed um and there's so much we've discussed um, uh, there's so much to yeah. this i mean trust psychological safety getting the right people in with the right behaviors inclusion we've talked about 
um, that, that line managers are making sure that their their capability is right. There is it's a real cocktail of things, isn't it? That obviously seems to create and and have an impact. It's, it seems very contextual about obviously what that is and what you really need within that organisation. Compensation, um, accountability, a higher so much to it. It's we could probably go on for about three hours, but we we are coming up to our hour. So I'm go, I'm going to try and finish on this last question, which is I suppose like the silver bullet question. I always try and get this kind of thing in at the end of each of our shows so um all of those things combined assuming you've got let's say a team in an organization that maybe needs to improve its performance to become a real high performing team if there was one thing or the biggest impact thing that you could do to make that happen what would it be so we we'll try and look for that silver bullet thing the most important thing we'll go around in an order. So we'll go as we start the panel. So Lisa, we'll go with you first <laughs> and then we'll go around We'll finish with Francisca and then we'll finish with our, our two lies, one truth as well. So Lisa, okay. what is the silver bullet? How do we get a high performance? What's the most important thing to focus on? Hmm. I think really getting to know individual preferences is really important. Priorities, preferences, and being able to really work with those so there's things where where people are really strong and there's things that they can do but that it will drain them and i think acknowledging those and trying to work to people's strengths and build that team where people are energized and that energy is maintained and not burnt up um so perry timms has got a great book about um how you view your workforce like a battery and you never want to um get it to empty you know you don't HR often talks about discretionary effort you know actually you, you want engagement but you don't want to burn people out so having a healthy team where people's strengths are um, utilized um, and is energized that would that would be my takeaway. You know one of the questions I was going to ask earlier that, I've, that I've, we didn't get around to in the show was uh, we just had obviously World Mental Health Day and the last, not the last show we did, the show before last that we did was uh, Let's Stop Burnout. Uh, and it's interesting, obviously, Perry's a, a, a friend and has been on the show actually twice. He's one of the very few that's been on twice. Um, but uh, how you balance high performing teams with well-being, because sometimes it can mean that they're, they're working, you know, extremely productive because they're working silly hours and doing everything else. So. We didn't quite go into that one, but um, but it's very interesting. You kind of brought it up there at the end about how to do that without obviously overstepping that sort of line and, and making sure that, that you know people don't burn out um, doing that. So, um, Liz, would you like to tell us what what you would consider the most important thing that you can do to create a high performing team? I think of this not in disagreement at all, but yeah, complementary. I'm really a structuralist at heart. And so I think the first thing is to understand the work and to make sure that there's true clarity about the work and what needs to be accomplished. And then to be able to array the people once, as Lisa says, you've understood them and to get their understanding and acceptance of what the work is and to make sure you have a good match there. So that, as we said before, there is competence because they can care about it a lot, but if they don't have the skills, it fails anyway. So I'll come at it from the work perspective, and that will give us uh, perhaps a different leg to the stool. And maybe now Francisco can add the third. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. I was, I was thinking about what you were saying. Um, for me, is 
first, uh, like Liz, understanding the work, understanding the work, um, knowing the goals, knowing the goal, what that organization and the sense of high performing team or whatever, what are the goals, and and adding uh, objective data, right? For me, is to assess our teams, to knowing them better, approaching conversations with them, to figure out what's going on there, what is happening, what are the hidden, you know, uh, streams there that are avoiding us to 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 achieve the goal, and then we we, we need to assess. We need to know what kind of behaviors are are there, and then as a consequence, perhaps we have some people in the wrong position, and this is really common in some organizations. You know, people that are not fitting their their the responsibilities or or positions or whatever. And then if you move them, if you reorganize them a little bit, you know, you can you can you can improve uh, the things, right? And that's for me. Wonderful. There we go. So that could be a whole show, just that last bit, that last question. Yeah. I think we like a whole hour on. So, <laughs> but yeah, we uh, we're obviously getting over our time. So we'll we'll, we'll wrap up with our uh, um, two lies and one truth. Um, and remember, guys, that my I've been really on it the last few shows, so I'm getting really good at this now. I'm, I'm going to start a second career as a poker player, I think, because uh, I, I can work these tales out pretty well. So. Um, if we can go around as we did. So I think um, we went in the same order, right? So I think, Lisa, you told us your three first. So we'll, we'll all guess. So don't tell us the answer. Just remind us what the three were. Uh, so I travelled to South Africa on my own when I was 19 and had a job making didgeridoos. Uh, I beat Findus Pancakes, who you haven't heard of, for a HR yeah. award. <laughs> Too young. <laughs> and I have a degree in fashion design. Okay. So, Liz, which one of those... Is the truth? Is the truth. I'm going to go with the degree in fashion design. Degree in fashion design. Francisco? Uh, yeah, I go for it. Fashion design. Uh, the same. I'm going to go for the making didgeridoos. That's my, that's what I think <laughs> the truth is. So come on, Lisa, which one is it? <laughs> it was the making the didgeridoos. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Told you. And and Findus Pancakes beat me to the HR award. <laughs> oh, did they? Oh, <laughs> oh okay. Oh, well, so it's like a half truth almost. <laughs> They're normally the best ones, actually. The ones that really uh, capture me out are normally the ones that are half truths. They're kind of right. And this is like a slight technicality, um, yeah. but most of the. Most <laughs> of the you know that the there's truth in a lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we go. Lisa, Lisa's uh, wise words. Uh, <laughs> Liz, uh, remind us of your three facts uh training as a professional pianist yeah. running a 300 person call center when i was 23 and um doing elaborate dinner parties go on then lisa which one do you think i think that you ran a call center when you were 23 call center 23 francisco i'm gonna go for uh dinner parties Din okay so I'm, it's funny, before you said this, I was already going with this, by the way. I'm going to go for the concert pianist. That's that's my, what I think it is. Lisa's right. Ah, well I was done. a child responsible for hundreds ah, of adults. Oh, my wow. gosh. Well done. Oh, my God. 
That's that's a huge amount. I of did take piano lessons, and my teacher wanted me to be a concert pianist. But ah, right, <laughs> I could see like pianist hands. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see them <laughs> out. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, she's got a few there. I'm sorry to ruin your streak. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, so, Francisco, um, yours. Um, oh, okay. Go on, your three facts. Yeah, uh, I love uh, having for breakfast uh, chocolate special K with pineapple juice instead of milk. So I know, we, weird, weird. <laughs> I'm so worried uh, about that, that's true. Yeah, uh, I worked as a stripper during my university stage. Yeah. And the last one, I'm a big fan of Harry Potter. Okay, Lisa? I mean, I just want to believe that you're a stripper. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Lisa is saying Francisco's a stripper. Uh, <laughs> Liz, which one are you going for? This is strange, but I don't know how you could have proposed the first if it wasn't true. So you're like, saying I don't know how you even came up with that. So I'm going no, with the pineapple juice. And I also say that I'm also going with that because it is a bit bizarre. But if it's true, and I think it is, I really worry that's not very healthy, Francisco. That's not a great <laughs> yeah, way to start super, your day. No, that is that is the truth. <laughs> it's a lot of sugar, that right? That anyway, God, which which is the truth? Yeah, the first one that I love. Yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And it has a reason because I, I was I was um doing fitness, bodybuilding. Uh, yeah. during my university stage and, and uh, I had to avoid uh, lactose and then oh, I, I substituted uh, milk for wow. pineapple cheese. Interesting. Cheese. That is very yeah. unique. And, and I think then it's something, it's something addictive, right? It's something yeah. addictive. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I know, I'm weird. I'm weird. So that's you know. We've learned something about you all um, <laughs> as long as we've learned about how to build a high-performing team. So um, thank you to the three of you for joining uh, us on this show. Uh, thank you for uh, watching at home or wherever you are. Um, and if you're watching the recording or listening, then thank you also for tuning in. Uh, we have lots of other shows like this on Hosting HR, all kinds of topics around HR topic, but not always with HR speakers, um, but people that will um, help the HR profession. So, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this show. And if you have, then please do check out some other shows. But otherwise, thank you all. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this show and do check out our other episodes. If you'd like to get involved in the live audience, why not subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the notification so you know when those live shows are. If you're a HR professional looking for recruitment or career support, please check out our website for further information, hrrecruitmentsolutions.com.